0: Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health, and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human, and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. Today on Laugh Your Cry Out, I have my first friend on the show. Not only a friend, but one of my mentors from the world of advertising. John Durham is a professor at the School of Management at the University of San Francisco and the CEO of the storied firm Catalyst. Our topic today is the book, The Coddling of the American Mind How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. This is part one of a two part series. I hope you dig it. As discussed, Professor, The Coddling of the American Mind is our topic today. (laughs) And by the way, you have the Distinct honor of being my first friend on my podcast.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I how appropriate is that? I mean, well, <laughs> I'm lucky that number one, that's the most valued thing that you could say is being a friend and thank you. And I've enjoyed the, you know, what you've been doing. And obviously I'm a very big fan of, uh, pod, pod and video casting. Cause it's just so engaging conversations.
0: Well, thanks again. Yeah. I, a couple of things happened. As you know, I, I got the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And it was written by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. And full disclosure to my 10 listeners <laughs> is that I love Dr. Jonathan Haidt. I was enamored with his first book called Politics. And he wrote that approximately a decade ago. And it changed the way I viewed my conservative friends. Forever, it's it doesn't mean I necessarily
1: agree with
0: them, but I understand why they believe what they believe.
1: Two See, I think books. that's half the the battle is the fact that we don't have to agree. No, but but we don't have to we don't have to be disagreeable. I mean, you know, we it can't right. be personal, and when it's personal, it ceases being intellectually moral. Yep arguments. Look, there are people who have different opinions. You know, I vacillate very liberal in their times. I'm very centrist. Doesn't mean that I don't still fundamentally hold the same values. I know what I don't believe in. And I'm And my intolerance comes from ignorance.
0: Yeah. No, I, we both lose it on that. One.
1: Yeah. We, <laughs> it's, you and I both, you and I both share those, <laughs> you know, what I call the SFB people, uh, yes. you know, blank for brains that yes you know
0: they <laughs> yeah. so. it's all good no i think that the the weird thing was i actually got this book originally because of my fatherhood so it really didn't have anything to do with corporate america which we'll get into and the reason i thought this was so applicable to you and i having this conversation is that you have many years decades as an educator at the highest levels, at USF, in the School of Management. You've been a mentor to me and many other people in the advertising business for even longer. And, and you're a businessman. So I thought that would be really cool in the sense that you kind of encompass or encapsulate everything that this book is about. And to start out with the book, it the economy of the American mind, again, was something that I wanted to look into because of
1: my little boy's. And, and, you are, and you are rightfully so because the parenting, I don't think they address the way they should. The book is very conflicting for me. I mean, I would read a page and, and then I'd read a page. Well, that's interesting. And you know me, interesting right. is one of those words like, okay, <laughs> you know, what the hell were they thinking? Uh, there's a couple of things that I think that, you know, they raise some really good points but this book is very conflicting and i and i don't think it's as simple as they that they're portraying that these are the solutions that they recommend
0: well it's and we kind of touched on this with some of our texts back and forth this last week i agree with you and i think that's why this book was so compelling for me is that i would have the same reaction so one of the chapters would be tiled in like yes i agree with you guys great research these guys did their homework. It makes total sense. And then I would see things like, "Oh, I don't understand that," or they're avoiding the bigger issue. Those kind of things. Yeah. And I, I, think specifically around the kids. Um, let's we can start there. The book itself is framed, and I'm gonna have notes, obviously. But the book was framed around three major untruths. And this is for our listeners: the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, they have the untruth. Sorry, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. <laughs> is what they have. The untruth of emotional reasoning, always trust your feelings. And the untruth of us versus them, life is a battle of good and evil people. And how they actually define safe space is a place or environment in which a person or category of people can feel confident that they will not be exposed to discrimination, criticism, harassment, or any other emotional or physical harm. And we'll and get into
1: that. actually be colleges in the academic environment you know yes and it really should be colleges should be that safe place where there is good discourse and good thinking and safety and you know yep. and then it's not necessarily i think it is in the classroom i'm not necessarily sure that it is in the other parts of the institution but i definitely think in the classroom at least from my experience is a real concerted effort to have ideas and to express them and to talk about. Now I teach business and marketing. You know, this is not political, even though it's real interesting, Joey, in the past year, with brands taking stands. Yeah. It's it's interest, you know, you and I know in the marketplace that can be challenging. I think they've always taken stands, they've just never beat their chest on it.
0: Yeah. And that's something too that I think, again, the amalgam of your experience is important here because when I first started reading about safe space, there was an article that these guys wrote in 2016 about the Coddy of the American Mind. And that's where it started. And they started seeing some examples, one of which I reference in my notes is at Brown University. They had some issues that made people feel uncomfortable. And they created a safe space for the students based on emotional and ideological harm. And that's where I thought that the the safe space thing goes too far. And so remembering that kids in college or young men and women in college, I have to get that out of my head. I keep killing kids, but the young men and women, 18 to 22, the other adults, they're adults. And so That's where I get confused because safe space in general to me is exactly this. I think that any university should place discrimination, harassment, abuse in a place where that is not allowed. And I don't exactly know how they do it at your your college, John, but like that doesn't seem okay on any front.
1: But then when. And and every school not only professes it, they practice it. Now, they don't, a lot of them do it discreetly because you're dealing with unions, you're dealing with a variety of issues. But every school practices, even the, the real right-wing evangelical, the Oral Roberts, and, you know, the Mormon schools in Utah, they allow, you know, space. Now, they allow diversity of thought. I don't know, heavy, but they allow tolerance of different opinions. You know, professors do have conversations. They don't tend to weigh into, particularly in Mormon, they don't tend to weigh into social issues as much. But they, you know, they're very, the only social issue they weigh in on is that Mormons go on missions to help make better people. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, we can laugh about those people, but, That's part of academic is getting you out in the marketplace, getting you out to think. So I applaud their efforts would not necessarily be the way that I would do it at USF, which is Jesuit, which puts a lot of emphasis on social justice and all the schools that are in the Jesuit tradition. Catholics, you know, have a variety of of uh, different cults, I call them. But the Jesuits value social justice and they significantly value education. They value the art and the science of learning, the art and science of discussion. I'm not going to say it's not without thoughts. And there are intolerant teachers, you know, and I'm sure there's some teachers who teach history and political science who, you know, have their personal opinions. And they don't let it judge how they evaluate student thinkings who can articulate an argument. I mean, you know, I met a conservative who actually the other day, I make, makes it sound like, you know, <laughs> that I don't know any, that gave a, a relatively articulate thought on the voting rights issue. He made he made some good points. And he goes, well, you may not agree. And he cited some statistics. I said, no, you, you brought up you approach it intelligently, not demonically, not, oh my God, you know, not right. racist. You know, I don't necessarily think you're totally right, but at least I think that you you're approaching it from an intelligent conversation.
0: Well, and I think that's to me, that's what strikes at the heart of the safe space debate, because it is very complex. It's not a matter of for me, Brown University, when they had issues around ideology and emotional harm. They actually, and this is a fringe example, but I wanted to bring it up anyway, is that they actually have pillows, crayons, Play-Doh, calming music, and toys. So infantiling, to me, that was just like, it seemed very infant-like. It seemed very atavistic in the sense of, these are adults, no matter what bothered them. If the university itself, there are people on the campus calling them the N word, or they were transphobic, or they were verbally abusing these people, and this is on a daily basis, this isn't like, you know, once in a while, then I understand that these folks need to find a place to find community and to yeah. feel like they can yeah. talk about these yeah. issues. I get that. But it's also, is that the administration's job? Is yeah. that the, is, yeah. and, and it's to keep those Things up and running, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. It is the administrative side of the institution to provide those havens and to make sure in the classroom that free expression, free expression, controversial expression, because there are courses, philosophy courses obviously have different points of view. Science and math, you know, I don't necessarily know, but I mean, political science, you know, history. You know, obviously, history is being evaluated in different lights right now, and people are asking different questions. Not trying to change history, they're trying to provide lens into what happened in order to better understand where we are today. In our business, in the business that you and I cut our teeth in, and marketing has evolved. You know, the biggest issue that we deal with is. How much can I piss you off with advertising and marketing (laughs) and PR before I lose you? How close can I get to get you to consider my product without alienating you? The issue of privacy, uh, which I personally think is a bit overrated. Uh, You know, my feeling on, you know, I say this in class and it's really interesting I mean, I said, how many of you watch ads? You know, they're all marketing people. No hands go up. Okay, (laughs) no hands go up. And then I say, any of you go, any of you been to a Super Bowl party? Everybody's hands go up. Anybody watch an ad during the Super Bowl? Oh my God, they can start talking Mm -hmm. about all these ads. I said, see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not that advertising is wrong, it's that advertising is stupid or bad. Right. You know, insult you, you remember the bad. You don't remember, hey, that was a third ad in the fourth pot. You remember the creative. You remember the message. If the message is not compelling or funny or sensual or fear or relevant, it may not get your attention. But there are times when you might be looking for a car or you're looking for something for your kids, you know, soccer equipment. You know, you and Deb need to go buy something. You're researching. You want all the information you can. Yeah. Now, where our business screws up is once you make that purchase, we still piss you off and we still send stuff to you.
0: Right. Then we hit you with a bunch of ads of the oh stuff I just bought. <laughs> it just
1: <laughs> happened to me. I bought yeah. a car. I mean, as you know, I, I was in an accident. I had to buy a new car. I go to Audi. I do all my research, blah, blah, blah. I'm glad I got all these different bases. I buy the car. Two or three weeks later, I'm still getting ads from yeah. Audi. I'm like... Hello, is A not talking to B, not talking to C? I'm already a customer. Talk to me. And even people like me are getting frustrated. So I can imagine the average person. So, but in the classroom, we're talking about, you know, what are those issues? And now the idea of brands taking on positions, not just political taking on issues of racism and sexuality and how they portray themselves. And, you know, do they project reality or do they show these abstract, you know, Gucci models that aren't real and right. that aren't good for you? Those are legitimate well, that, issues. That another question. Debated.
0: Sorry to interrupt, bud. I the, the question I would have, you again, is the, that you mentioned history and that's one of the course's where microaggressions, or excuse me, that's one of the courses where trigger warnings are now being yes. offered up. Do you guys do that at your university?
1: I, I mean, every school is, is looking at that. And this is my read. Notice the third word in critical race theory. It's theory. Yeah, It's ideas. You know, all of a sudden there is a lens now to look at how race has played perspectives in the development of of American civilization. It doesn't mean that we're rewriting George Washington is still the first president. Everyone has known he has owned slaves. You know, no one ever questioned how it affected his judgment. And now there are people asking that question. Did it affect his judgment? It doesn't mean that they're out to trash George Washington, uh, no one questions Einstein's theory of relativity, but all of a sudden you have people saying they can't teach critical race theory. And I go, so college is about theories, it's about ideas, it's about exploring, it's about asking questions. What I didn't, the funny thing about it, when you told me what you wanted to do, you know, I go to uh, my favorite bookstore and they don't have it, which <laughs> bothers me. So I, then I go to Amazon, which I knew I would get in two days. I ordered it. And what I really thought was interesting was the subtitle, besides the coddling of the American mind, Joey, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And I'm thinking to myself, so you're, you're going, that was, I saw that. and I'm, Okay, wow. So they're going to argue that having these conversations is setting people up not to be able to think, not to be able to postulate. I think your kids are going to go into classrooms with a better sense of appreciation of knowledge and appreciation of information. They're also going to have a short attention span, you know, yeah. uh, that, that makes me more nervous than, than, uh, than anything else. Cause I see it in, I see it as a teacher. It frustrates me, their attention span. They think, in fifteen, twenty in little bites. Yeah. In little bites, you know, what what I call snackable, snackable conversation. And the other thing is if they're not touching this, yeah, you know, they have withdrawal. So what i did for a couple of years was when everybody came in, I had you put your phone in a basket and I would do mobile breaks every thirty minutes.
0: Well that's smart. And, well, and- they touched on that in the beginning of the book, right? So that was the early on of the kids. They called it the i generation, which was kids that were born in 1995. The iPhone came out in 2007, as we all, all know in the marketing world. By 2010, huge adoption, and then lots of engagement on these smartphones. And so this group of kids, and this is their first phase of the book, they actually do posit that this generation is more fragile based on their proclivity to being online, on social, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, at all. And because of that, they feel like, and they, and they prove this through research, that they're, the depression and anxiety is going up, hockey stick kind of graph, specifically for females. So yes. men have, have had an increase in mental anxiety but they have not diagnosed themselves like the females have so in, i think that and i'm trying to cite research which is dangerous but it was it, it was one out of 7 women in the i generation is declaring that they have a psychological malady or disorder one out of 7 it used to be one out of 20 and it's so you're probably seeing
1: one, probably two out of 7 now
0: Probably. Yeah, well, you, so you're seeing these things increase, and so that's a piece of what they—that means how right. good intentions and bad ideas. They also talk about free-range parenting, which yeah, is something.
1: Well, I, that- I mean, you, you and Deb, I can't imagine you and Deb not sitting down with your kids at dinner and having a conversation instead of what I'm depicting. A lot of parents do sit down. Kids are having phone. And the parents have a phone at their seat as well. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. So they talk about the kids, you know, doing all this and being on the phone. Guess what? There's a relatively good chance the parents are not engaged. Correct. When I grew up occasionally we would turn on the evening news for 15 minutes hear what, and then talk about it as a family unit. Like what's going on in the world? But the idea that dinner as a conversation, the lost art of conversation, you know, and then this past year, everything has been virtual. And now as kids are going back into school, they're going to have to learn social manners. They're going to have to learn social mores. Yeah. I mean, you know, you I know you as a parent, you're actively involved. You're engaging for every one of you. There's 97 others who just like go, go, go on the phone. Go yeah. play a game. right? Go do something. What can I buy you? That's not... So they come into classroom. You'll appreciate that's, it. They'll come into classroom with an expectation. And I go, let me tell you, you know, inevitably when you review the syllabus, the most pointed questions are always about grades. And you know what I say? It's not mine to give. It's yours to lose. All of you here start out as an A. Yeah. Well, that's cool. You know, You know, so I don't, I don't give, you earn. Okay. Yeah. So don't, you know, don't, don't blame me. If you get an A minus or a B plus. That's what you, today it starts with you. You own it. You don't come, you know, and you can see 40% of the grade is based on discussion. I want an opinion. I'm going to ask you, what did you think of this? What would you have done? And the take home final, with the exception of the first two questions, is all what is. Joey, you and I know our business is about scenario. There is no textbook true and false for the bullshit that we go through every day. So it's like we play scenario planning. And, And I don't think parents do that. So when they come in the classroom, the reviews always come back. Wow, you got me to think differently about the business. I always get that back in my reviews. And schools take that stuff very seriously. The one thing that you, in anticipation of this podcast, I texted you that I talked to several friends of mine across the country who teach at various schools in Ohio, uh, Vermont, Georgia, Texas, Kansas, and Arizona, just to try to get a cross section. And I asked a few questions about where they are. And a lot of them blame that the parents are stifling the kid's ability to be engaged in the classroom.
0: And so that's a great topic because that's exactly what they talk about in the research with parents being coddling. And to be clear, I even wrote this down to make sure that I was clear with it. They said that it's not that they find the kids lazy, it's that coddling itself is just overprotected. Yes. So you know. is that is that hurting them in the long term because there's a couple of phrases that came out in the book, which I thought were beautiful. Nassim Nicholas Taleb said, The wind extinguishes a candle but energizes a fire. And that's an example that they used for letting your kids deal with some pain. And then prepare your child for the road, not the road for the child.
1: And and I, I, those... see, I love that, that line I love because yeah. I agree with that. You know, Me too. Uh You know, there's a there's a section there on child play where they talked about how parents evaluated what their kids should be in first grade. This was in 1979 or 1989 questions for the first grade and then questions that in Austin, Texas, in 2019, parents should be asking. And they're so radically different. Times are different. The devices are different. You know, we no longer have three TV stations. You know, we have a multitude right. of information sources. Uh, as I said, this book conflicted me because I, I want diversity of opinion. You know, there are times I say things in class, you know, I really don't know. I don't know what KFC was thinking when they did that outrageous ad. <laughs> you never know what Burger King is doing, but they're trying to piss McDonald's off. Yeah. Uh, is that good or bad? You know, and then, and I tell everybody, remember, these are all our opinions. You know, and hopefully, we, as a marketer, you're you're bringing that, the the the, the part that really conflicted me, Joey, and this is, uh, this is the one that I had the most angst of all of it. Is don't trust your gut because you know they're saying that that's uh, that's a bad fallacy, uh, and that's not good. I think marketing is a lot of trusting your instincts. I mean, you know, I was—I would agree on that. You and I know that when we we know an idea is right for a client, we know it. Yeah. Now the client may not know it, but we know it. You know, we live, breathe and eat it and we'll defend it. And if they want to go a different direction, that's their prerogative. I don't think client, they're just humans as well. I don't believe the client's always right. I just believe the client is a client, and we respect that. Uh, but that part about sometimes you have to make a gut, instinctive decision. Data isn't everything, because data is just an assemblage of opinions and facts. And yeah, I mean, how many surveys have you gotten in the last twenty-four hours? Are you satisfied? And if you write, unless you give somebody (laughs) five stars, they want to ask you 10,000 questions.
0: Yeah, why didn't I get five? Well, I think that Greg Lukonioff talks to that specifically around the gut. And I think it's probably a little different in our industry because we have both quantitative qualitative research and then a bunch of history in the space. What he referred to, and this is just my take on it, was that he suffered from chronic depression to the point where he was institutionalized. And in it, he started dealing with cognitive behavioral therapy for the first time. Right. And that, for anyone who doesn't understand, it's, it's kind of a list of questions about catastrophizing. So when you're anxious and diagnosed with anxiety disorder or any type of major depressive disorder, your brain catastrophizes. It's a word that therapists use, meaning that if this doesn't go well, I'm going to fail this exam. And if I fail this exam, I'm going to be kicked out of school. My parents are going to disown me. I'm going to live in my car down by the river, right? So it, everything goes crazy. And so, what he was being taught in therapy with CPT, CBT, was let's dive into what you're doing. So, that's the proverbial put your head in the dragon's mouth, face your fear, do what you can to deal with that emotion, understand where it comes from, don't always trust it. And part of the microaggression piece and the trigger warning piece. All has to do with this, that chapter around cognitive behavioral therapy, because what they're saying is that if part of their thesis is that this new generation of kids is coming in more fragile, which was the untruth, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Their untruth, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you weaker, meaning that you want to start to, as a parent, move remove obstacles from the road for the kids. And then when they get to college, what they're saying again in this thesis is that they're saying that the kids today coming into school from 2013 on are more mentally fragile than have been previously. And they point to that being the phones. They point to that being the parents as opposed to... And so like one question I'd want to ask with the professors that you talk to from a smattering of the country... What do they see? Anything as far as the change there? Do they see the children, the, the young and men, women being more sensitive
1: to they're topics? They see that they that uh, the more white they are, the more privileged they are. The okay. the more expectations they have. Uh, and are they
0: getting up. involved with the professors on grades? Do they like do the parents actually call the professors and say you can't give Johnny? Oh, I've, a had, seat? I've
1: had parents call me. You have okay. Oh, absolutely through the years. And I go, you know what? <laughs> actually, I got taken to the academic senate a few years ago because a student, you know, I gave her an A minus. Never showed up for class. An impeccable writer, Joey, phenomenal writer. This is an MBA class, you know. Yeah. Discussion. You had a group project. 50% of your grade is the group grade. Her group never saw it, But she could write and visually produce. I mean, just an incredible... She didn't deserve an A-. But her writing and her thinking was stunning. Okay. Her parents... You know, I screwed up her perfect 4.0. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but I had all of my... Doc, you know, I... You know, you learn, unfortunately, in academics, you got to document. Yeah. I said, fine. I won, and they asked me, what should her grade be? I said, well, her really grade probably should have been a B minus. They changed it to a B minus. She called me every name in the book. Wow. Okay, so that's an example.
0: That's an example of stuff that would bother
1: me. Well, it didn't, you know what? As a dad, I mean. It it didn't bother me because I was in the right. I'm like, I I say it in the beginning how I feel and I spell it out because you learn in that syllabus is a legal document for the next 8 to 10 to 12 weeks, however long it is. So you have to spell it and the grading is important. And it's really funny. Grades, you know, I do think we've overinflated the value of grades. And, you know, we sometimes we've lost the value of learning, which is really but one of the reasons why I love our business is that we're all all the time involving. But you know, people they need this measurement. Fine. Then you set those standards, you define them, uh, and you know, and you just take them from there. But I got taken once. Uh, I've had a couple other parents call me. I explained what happened. I said, "Did did you read the syllabus?" did she or he tell you what the expectations and then one of the questions that I have on their take home final is everybody in the group has to evaluate each other. And let me tell you, they are hard as hell on each other a lot harder than I would be because they're interacting with each other and peer to peer. And this is an anonymous setting versus being in a, in a sit down, you know, how could you all improve? But there is, around the country, there's a fear that there is, you know, there is great pressure. There's great inflation pressure. Uh, and, you know, but there was no fear of having controversial issues in a classroom.
0: No, that's good.
1: You know, they that's felt good. like, hey. in fact, if anything, they needed to make sure in their respective disciplines, It is most of them were in the business school, but I talked to a couple of friends of mine, one in political science and one in history, just so I can make sure that I wasn't staying in in the normal discipline. And uh, no, they said, they're welcome. They said, you know, because why do you think they're Democrats and Republicans and libertarians? You know, everybody has a point of view. How do you, you know, he said, I have to respect conservatives. I have to respect liberals. He said, they're all, he said, they all have pluses. They all have minuses. I don't I mean he goes, I'm a radical libertarian. I go, well, I've heard a libertarian. I don't know what a radical libertarian is. <laughs> he spent five minutes telling me and I'm like, wow, uh, you really are. Don't you really don't want order. Uh, right. <laughs> that's a different world. That is
0: different. Well, because a couple of things, Can your TV on chairman? I no. can hear something in the background.
1: Okay. Oh, I'm so- oh yeah. Oh, I thought I had turned. Sorry about that. Yes. That's no, okay. It-
0: It'll help the audio later. Thanks. So, what I was saying around the grades, that was another question. So, the book really talks to a couple big things microaggressions, right? And t- professors specifically Jonathan Haight says he has changed his teaching style I can still hear your TV I don't know if
1: it's on okay hold on let me shut another door keep talking <laughs>
0: okay so he was talking at, at NYU is where he's now teaching he's also in the business school and one of his when he was asked on stage, during a debate about safe space, they said, have you changed or altered your teaching style? And he said, yes, with an immediacy. And I did so because I used to be a very provocative professor where I would bring up topics that were very controversial. And I loved that as a professor because the idea of college is to engage in ideas, specifically different ideas, different ideologies, and engage in a true debate. But he said now there's an 800 number in the bathrooms, on the walls, on the uh, uh, boards at the school that says if you feel triggered or controversial topics have been introduced by your professor and you feel unsafe, please call this number.
1: And these are anonymous. I think that's disingenuous. Okay.
0: You you read that too, right? So that surprised me. And that kind of... This is... My original I, I showed this already, but my original take on this was that I was getting angry with the adults yes. for hurting the kids Spe- not all the way from the you know the kids that are playing video games twelve hours a day, they're not allowed to run across the street and play in the park without being supervised. they're not you know I, it's like all this this data that they showed why kids are being prepared to fail. They also talk about soccer games as a joke where. You're not allowed to keep score. And they make the point that children keep score. And as you know, I coached my boys' teams for the last three years. And Kingston is you know nine and Ken is seven. And they were on a championship team. And they got medals in kindergarten. And they got medals in first grade. But they were participation medals. And we made that clear. In second grade, they won the championship. And we Boy, gave them the championship. let me
1: championship. tell you something. One of the most coveted websites I bet you've never heard of it's one that's been going on for years. It's called Rate My Professor.
0: Huh? I've not heard of that. Well, let me tell you something. I'll check it out. Is you it- ask,
1: you at rate my professor. You and it's every school in the country. You ask every student. We check you out, and you're talking about I've refused to look at it. Okay. Okay. I, you know, because I don't really care what the ratings are because I get the official school ratings, but I don't really want to know what they think. And, you know, at the beginning of the the first night of every class, I always go through the syllabus and I say, you know, why are you here? What's your major? Where are you from? I I, I want to know a snippet about you. Why would you take this class? Because I teach, you know, introduction to MBA marketing and I teach consumer behavior because I believe consumer behavior is just fundamentally our business. And uh, I checked you out and rate my professor. And I laugh and they say, have you read it? And I go, absolutely not. That sounds (laughs) communist to me. I don't really want to know what any of you think in the room laughs. Well, somebody says, well, we can come in here and drink and talk and share good ideas and we can express how we feel. And I said, well, that's our job to encourage discussion. And then that leads into a significant part of their grade is discussion. It is opinions. You know, I, I, I share mine. You know, I don't hesitate to say, what I think is good and bad, but I also make sure I do it under, these are the things you need to know in our business. These are the facts. These are approved things. But you talk to any college student from freshman on, rate my professors an integral part of their life. So if he's changing his style, yeah. I, I, I personally think that's not a good idea. Scott Galloway, who teaches at NYU, yeah. you know, who everybody in the world loves, this week he had a a relatively controversial opinion on Bezos and what Bezos is doing. He said, "You know, I really think that was not, you know, smartest thing he could do." Well, and all of a sudden, his, and people were attacking him, like, "What the yes. hell is the matter with you?" Right. Uh, and 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 you could just see he got defensive. Well, that's he's not a defensive type guy. He's no. very.
0: Very offensive, yes.
1: And I'm thinking, oh my God, does this mean we're going to see a a, you know, you know, a a, a new Galloway? And I'm hoping not, because I know people who take his class and they come away just energized because he gets them to think. And that's our job is to get those minds, not to foster being, you know, that George Washington was, you know, a bad man because he owned slaves. Yes. He was part of the culture at the time. Was it, is it wrong? Yes. Is the 1619 project historically got stopped to cause and think? Yes. It's just, it's, it's things to think about. We can't change 1619. We can't do that. Uh, But we can get people to think and appreciate where we are more important to where we're going. And that, I mean, I do like his quote about the journey.
0: Yeah. Well, I also think that what what you're touching on is key, that this book also, and I didn't mention this, there's 4,700 universities in the country. And what they're saying is that the top elite liberal universities, based on geography even, so out here in the West Coast, and then New England and the East Coast, those are the, those are the areas that they talk about. And the colleges that they reference are evergreen, which was a very powerful case study, which I'll get into, that with Brett Weinstein. They have Berkeley, which had the Mila Yiannopoulos fiasco. And they have a ton of other liberal colleges here in the West. And then in the East, they had Middlebury with the Charles Murray issue. They had Yale, Columbia, Harvard. I mean, all of these schools. University of Chicago would be the only Midwestern one there. But, all these universities have these things in play. They have ratings for professors, they have trigger warnings, they have microaggression classes, they have classes on how to deal with. So as an example, with history, you have you know genocide and oppression and slavery and really top you know awful topics. And so there are kids that want to be excused from those because it triggers their Emotional warnings, which goes back to what Greg Licanioff is talking about with his own CBD training. And my like, question
1: to that is: Why the hell? Uh, then why the hell are they a history major? History yeah. is, you know, history is written by humans. Historiographers are humans. They each bring a different lens. I mean, if a student is that insecure and cannot accept the fact that they are contradictory opinions, doesn't mean they have to have them. Right. You know. My major was political science, political marketing, but I had a minor in history. I took a course in Russian, Russian Revolution history. This guy was an avowed Marxist.
0: Avowed right, and that Marxist. doesn't exist anymore.
1: <laughs> you know what? But we all knew how he personally felt, but he taught what happened right. in from 1905 to 1919 in a sense of perspective of history, he gave his opinion, and those of us who were in that room were intelligent enough to discern his opinion versus the the historical what, reality the facts. of facts.
0: Yeah. Well, that gets into another subject which we can get into. That the idea there is viewpoint diversity. That was another topic in the book. And viewpoint diversity has changed dramatically since what you guys were called. You, the, you professors, the generation... World War II. You guys came out of World War II. A lot of the professors went into the colleges and they were almost equal. There was a lot of Republicans and there's a lot of Democrats. So it was not a 50-50, but it was real close. And in the 80s and 90s, per this research, is there was a two to one ratio between liberals and and conservatives. I started
1: teaching in 92. Yes. I think academics as a rule, unless you're teaching at a a historically religious college of fundamentals like Oral Roberts and uh, some Mormon schools. And believe me, I think those schools, some of them have some very excellent professors uh, who provide good, good points of view historically tended to be moderate to liberal because, you know, Mm -hmm. they were a bit isolated, but. I just fundamentally believe Joey from everyone that, I interact with and people who have kids in college and that the classroom is still a safe place for ideas and exchange. And well, if, that's
0: that's the big debate because the question then is, are we being taught by too many liberals? That's a big piece of the discussion. And it has to do with the viewpoint diversity I talked to is not just the two to one ratio. It's as of 2019, it was 17 to one. Yes. On college That's campuses,
1: probably it's you know, I you know that I'm sure depending on who you and you know you ask that question, answer is going to be yes. Liberals are going to say that they're providing you know the right kind of thinking. Conservatives are saying they're not providing both points of view. Well, it's actually right. not two points of view, or often than not, there are three points of view. I mean, correct. I I'm personally the period. There's two periods of history that really interest me. One is the Civil War, being from the South, and the other is Europe, 1931 to 1941. In the past three years, there have been three biographies of Hitler, written by some of the most, some of the great historians. We all know Hitler's life. These three people provided different lens into this man with a different perspective. They didn't alter the facts of history. They offered ways for you to think about how Hitler made decisions, and it hasn't changed my opinion. But wow, that was sure interesting. Uh, and the reason why I got turned on to it is one of my really good friends is a professor of German history, and he goes, "Oh my God, you've got to read, got to read Eric's book. You've got to read this. Look, look how he talks about it. He still can talk the facts, but he is he definitely throws out all these." Psychological theories about Hitler as more research is becoming undone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Reagan was president in the eighties. All of the documents are now becoming declassified, so a lot of things that historians can now look at. You know, was Reagan Reagan was an avowed conservative, but he was also very socially liberal. You know, mm-hmm. and conservative professors have had problems mixing those two together sometimes.
0: Well, I think that's issue is that if if it's a 17 to 1 ratio, what they're talking about is that it's difficult for peer reviews to be accurate. There's not a lot of citations and then there's a lot of blowback by professors being scared of their jobs. So if go, someone comes go, out,
1: go look at rate my professors because I'll as soon as we get off this that. call I talked to, you know, and and, and a couple of my professor friends share my philosophy. They never check it out because it's students more often than not like anything else vetting. You know, how many times do you write Uber Eats and tell them how happy you are with the delivery? (laughs) You know, you always write about you're pissed off. Something's not right. Right. You know, he goes a lot of it. He goes, but he, he goes, they will always find something usually nice to say about the person. And then, you know, about the experience. Oh, my God, that was easy. You know, you didn't have to show up. But there are things that the students look for. You know, students can't get off. They can't get off scot-free and neither can the professors. I do believe in this new modern world, every professor is going to be a little bit more conscious of what they do in the classroom to make sure that there is this open environment uh, and that they're not creating fear and paranoia. But it is a responsibility of the administration to encourage difference of opinion, difference of thought. Yeah. A fraternity brother of mine is a professor. who was a professor of history for a long time at the Univ- University of Mississippi, affectionately known as O. Miss. Johnny Rebel is a professor of Southern history. He taught Robert E. Lee was a traitor. You know, he, he said Robert E. Lee was a traitor. You can imagine in northern Mississippi how that went over, but he was yeah. a traitor.
0: Yeah, well, by definition.
1: Granted, <laughs> he was never granted a pardon. I don't know if you know, he was never granted a pardon back into the, to be an American citizen. I did
0: not know that, actually. Well,
1: most no, people well, don't, okay, because they automatically assume Robert E. Lee's a great American. He's not. He was a traitor. He resigned from the United States Army. He went to war war as a member of a different country. And when the war was over, when he succeeded, Grant, Lincoln, gave everybody a pardon except for seven Confederate leaders. And he was one of them.
0: And did he take any flack from that? Or was it okay? Because,
1: I don't know. It didn't really matter.
0: Yeah, well, he was teaching the truth. I think that's kind of where. He was
1: teaching the truth. Yeah. And he said, you know, this is not something we want to talk about. We live in the South, but we have to recognize this was not the war of the lost cause. This was not the war of Northern aggression. This was a war of one country to another. And one country lost. Correct. he He said the war died April 9th, 1865. And he goes, you know, there were a lot of people in that classroom that that was a, uh, wow, somebody's teaching us history, teaching us facts. They may not have liked what they heard, but he was never fired. He was very popular.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: You know, and he looked the professor, you know, the button down shirt, <laughs> with the bow tie, <laughs> you know, you know, you th- talk about me wearing a sweater vest. My God, I think he probably wore one to his bed. <laughs> but he was the quintessential academic. He welcomed opinion, but he separated facts. And in the very heart of the South, by saying Robert E. Lee and Andrew Stevens and all these people were traitors. And so oh, a couple of them were hanged. Yeah. As you would hang. But he goes, Robert E. Lee was never granted American citizenship.
0: Well, that makes sense. And and something I want to climb onto you, We welcome opinion. So that's a big piece of this book is that these liberal colleges that they called out, Berkeley, let's focus on Berkeley for a moment. Good point. Milo Yiannopoulos came onto the campus to speak. And for those of you in the audience that don't know who he is, he was a editor and writer journalist at Breitbart, which is a right-wing publication. He's a gay man. He's very, very... um,
1: opinionated provocative
0: yes opinionated and on purpose sometimes he likes to be a troll he likes to really poke and he got banned from twitter previous to this for inciting violence and harm against other people that was this thing so he was going to come and talk at berkeley and that's where everything went crazy so this is in 2017 1500 kids young men and women sorry came out to protest and about 150 of those took it to the next level and yeah. they vandalized ATMs and windows and banks and
1: and beat up people and a lot of these arrested. they should have been arrested well
0: exactly none of them were none of them and berkeley employees went on social live with their cameras and watched a young lady in a mega hat be sprayed with mace and then her and her boyfriend were beat He was his boyfriend was beat to the level he was unconscious. They filmed it. They said that Melianopoulos was his speech was violent, and the only way that they could to retort was to respond in kind with violence. And so that was their that was how they rationalized this. Out of the fifteen hundred people, they also found, you know, right wingers in there stirring the pot and other malcontents. But the idea that really bothered me in this in in this share of this book was that people went online bragging about how there's no possibility that anyone like Milo should ever be able to speak at Berkeley.
1: And see, I think that's a sin.
0: I think so too. It's crazy because that's where the whole freedom of speech this came out in 1968, right? Berkeley um, was the campus. That's
1: where, that's where the idea of being able to express freedom <laughs> yes. of speech Mario and all It was 1964, and and it and it was right to be able to do that. Yeah, because Berkeley in the 50s under Clark Kerr was it. You know, there was not a lot of diversity of thought. It was very white. It was very middle upper class. It was very rah rah. And uh, you know, some you know there was always the quote eccentric professor. Uh, You know, and there was always the academic ah. You know, he he or she, Uh, but freedom of expression. And freedom of speech. And speech should be on the campus. You know, I was in New York when that happened. And, you know, if I'd have been in, I have gone over to Berkeley to hear certain speakers that I don't necessarily agree with, but I wanted to hear them say what they said. I wanted to hear them articulate their reason. It didn't make me a, a conservative or it didn't make me a ultra liberal it just provided fodder for thought. Okay, here's what this particular man or woman thought, and this was their reason. Now, do, out of that fifteen hundred that protested, do they have the right to protest? Absolutely. For
0: sure. They yes. do
1: not have the right to create violence. Why is it that we're, you know, we didn't castrate them the same way that we're castrating these people who took the Capitol down on the sixth? Those people right. are fringe. They are unhealthy and they are not living examples. They're what's wrong. To me, that's what's wrong. That, you know, I agree. And on the college campus, diversity of thought and opinion and to ex- exchange ideas should be one of the three precepts of why you're in school.
0: And I agree. And that's that's where I was frustrated. I have yet to hear any argument against that. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you saying the same thing with your fellow colleagues and professors that. The one that really stands out was, as I mentioned, Brett Weinstein. So he was a tenured professor at Evergreen, as was his wife, Heather. They were both evolutionary biologists. And they had this really, and it's a very liberal college, to be clear. Oh, yeah. They had something they called Day of Absence. And it's been celebrated since the early 70s. And it was a playwright who came up with it a story of black people calling in sick to the town. To show what the town would be like without their presence. And it was a beautiful play. And so the college decided to take that into their university and have people of color go out and do things on their own that day. So they could take a day of absence, go do what they wanted to do to help any type of charity do whatever they wanted to do. And so they wanted to change that in the sense that the, the administrators said they wanted to, for this year, and this is 2016 or 2017, they wanted all white people not to be welcomed on the campus, whether faculty or student. And so Brett Weinstein sent a pretty impassioned email and said, this really goes against the idea of what this day of absence was about, which was celebrating the diversity and what they do. Yes. As a group, and what happens here, and this is actually telling people they are not allowed to come. So we're, I think we're actually creating more um, division here. I don't think this is a good idea. I agree. He also, he went off and, and talked about why he thought these things, and so the email itself got out. No big deal. But a week later, a group of about fifty multiracial kids stormed his classroom. They took it over. They wouldn't allow him to talk. They wouldn't allow the students to talk. Anyone who defended the professor was called a race traitor and a Nazi. Well, exactly. They should, they should have been arrested, but they weren't. And it got worse to the uh-huh. point where he was not allowed to talk. And then when he said, can I talk? Can I tell you why I think this? And they said, no, you're not allowed to talk because you're part of the problem of a white male dominated patriarchy. Within the university, this whole college is full of white men who run the organization and white women. There are no ethnicity here. There's nothing, blah, blah, blah. And that a big piece of that, which was more problematic, was when they were having these discussions, they said, you guys taught us this. You guys taught us to be angry about this. You guys taught us that we should not have a lack of diversity within our school.
1: That and- is... <laughs> is just, I mean, when I read that, you know, you, you're reading a book and, you, and you're visualizing. And I thought about him, you know, here's a man who was encouraging his students to think.
0: Who's a very liberal man, by the way. This is a, these are both very liberal professors. This that is shouldn't like, matter. No, that, it shouldn't. But I wanted
1: to just point no, that out. But it shouldn't, but I agree. But it shouldn't have mattered. What he's doing is he's encouraging his students to think different opinions, Yes. yes. uh, getting them to make some decisions. Look, we're rewriting. If you've noticed, most of these things are all tied in the political issues, you know, business schools aren't getting, you know, aren't getting, I think the only hot issue that we're encountering is, you know, brands are becoming political. Is that good or bad? How does it affect? Are we letting brands take on the red and, you know, red versus blue and all this? Um, You know, in some departments, you know, it baffles me that vaccines has become an issue. But, you know, a lot of this is political science, philosophy, history, uh, general arts, liberal arts. And all he was doing was encouraging diversity of thought. Yeah. To me, I'd arrest those students. I mean, it bothers me immensely to see six white men. Talk about abortion. Yes. It bothers me immensely. Number one, men can never get pregnant. And for them to say, well, you know, they can have guns and they can do all this. Well, guns kill people. You know, I I just don't buy any of the arguments. Doesn't mean that if one of them was uh, in, in the field that I'm in, I wouldn't have that. You know, they couldn't talk about abortion, but they can talk about their subject. And I believe that people should have the right to express their opinions when they should, but I always remind you of their opinions, their thought. And you know, when you talk to true historians, they can separate the history from the what is. We can't go back and bring Tulsa alive in 1920 when that horrific incident happened. Can we learn from it? Yes. Is Jim Crow being challenged should this be a legitimate conversation in a classroom yes the history of jim crow in the south it's not dead and it should be up for legitimate debate and to repress it is not good uh that's my personal opinion now if i were teaching history you know i would throw out well this is why it happened doesn't mean it's right what can we do to make sure that we as a society don't let these things happen? But, you know, the Brett Weinsteins, and you're right, most of these things occurred at Oberlin, you know, the liberals on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never hear problems about Stanford. You, you know, mm-hmm. Harvard is a, bas- quote, a bastion of liberalism. But some of the greatest, you know, conservative academics in the world teach at Harvard.
0: Yes. Well, and I think that's kind of where when you look at safe space, part of the safe space debate is can we have controversial speakers come to the school anymore?
1: Well, I think that's actually teachers need I think we should encourage it. I think we should have speaker series where we bring people. If we're not making you a better thinker, we're not gonna make you a better human.
0: Correct. That's actually where I think the protectionism or the coddling of children not only the, as with parents but when they get to the university level i don't think there should be anything anywhere near what i'm seeing and that's just, even after M- milo then like ben shapiro went to speak at berkeley same thing he's not allowed to speak here and when you interview these kids and they did these young men and women I'm sorry is that they're like hey we don't want this guy on our campus we don't he is his speech is violent it's wrong we shouldn't have to hear it and that's actually going too far. It's 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 the left going so far and left that they become right, in the sense that they're not even. I don't. In the safe space to me is if, if you don't want to see Ben Shapiro speak at Berkeley, then don't go. Go to the quad, and hang out with your buddies, and play frisbee and smoke a joint. Right? I don't. I don't understand why it's an issue if Ben Shapiro is speaking at university. You don't have to go.
1: The only argument on Milo that. And it and it was thin. It was thin. It was the violence? You know that he encouraged a lot through violence. Yes. And that part I don't agree with. I do not believe that violence solves. I don't believe violence solves it on the right. I don't no. believe violence solves it on the left. I don't believe violence. You know. So there's an argument that he is known to create. You know, create violence, and that he has a history of of of, of that little fringe of that 1500 okay? Not that that would have prevented me from, from him doing it, but I would have provided extra. Berkeley should, knowing what they know, should have provided the safety of that. So I blame Berkeley police and the University of California police for not doing what should be part of their job is you got a guy that, historically is known to have some violence following him. We've got to go out of our way to separate that from we can't be thinking about his or her opinions. Uh, But, I mean, I've been down to speakers at Stanford, which I've violently, I mean, I like to go to some history speakers. I'm like, oh, my God, what planet are you sitting on? That doesn't make any sense but I listen to their ideas. I'll go back and check in history and they're providing a lens into how they see history. And then, you you know, I just remind people, I heard a, I had a great professor in in grad school who made a comment one time and I, pardon me for the language, but he goes, "Opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. And he goes, just remember in our business, because you know I was getting a master's in political marketing, you're trying to elect candidate A over candidate B. You and I build those differentiators in that upper right box. What is it I like about Joey versus John or Joey versus Jane? Well, historically, you would always pop, put the focus on the positive, but uh, James Carville in 1992 said, it's the economy, stupid. He turned it back. We went back to negative campaigning. We've gone into the negatives in the classroom. That's not right. Uh, I hope that the academics of the world read this book and say, that is bullshit. Our place is safe to provide ideas. And if a student is afraid of ideas, they should be expelled and go to you know, go somewhere where there's go to a military institute or something. They right. should not be welcome at a free exchange. They now part of the other problem is, and you know, they didn't they didn't address this because of what's happened in the past year. Let's say your son's a sophomore, and a, you know, and he's taking an American history class, and a professor is throwing out the origins of the civil war in the 1840s and fifties and makes a comment or two, he goes home and tells you, you're a right wing, God fearing soccer coach, blah, blah, blah. And you get pissed off. So therefore you think this guy is a commie radical, you know, yeah. so parents automatically become black and white. They don't understand what is going on in a classroom because they've, you know, classrooms are bad. You know, they have all these, again, liberal professors. Yeah. A liberal professor is a liberal professor doesn't mean that he's not, he's intellectually bound to bring the best out in ideas and expression. And I'm not being a naive, I'm not being naive. I know there are people who abuse it, but there's where the responsibility of the school and there's enough mechanisms, even at right-wing Christian schools and ultra-left schools, that there are warning symbols through reviews, through being able to have people sit in classrooms, uh, you know, the secret shopper. There's enough out there The rate my professors, you know, all those types of things. But there are good warning systems if a teacher abuses their right and responsibility to provide this expression of intelligence and thinking.
0: It's good to know. So you, after reading this, would you say that this is a very small fringe because that's they're saying this too. It's they were using statistics in the five to eight percent on on this the left I would side. Is,
1: say, I would say based on Joey, some of the things that's happening right now in the past. Remember, this book was written before March fifteenth, twenty twenty, when the world has changed. You yes. know, when teachers had to reinvent their style. And yep. you had to engage students in two to three hour Zoom sessions. Yeah. And you had, you know. Uh,
0: That's a really good point. I didn't think, you know, and so that.
1: I don't, I think if they were writing the book now, that number probably would be, I'll go t- 10 to 16, I'll double their numbers. Okay. That's still scary. Okay. Yeah. brings it down to a a, a C plus B minus. That should not be academic freedom should be academic freedom is a responsibility of the school. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's one out of two. I don't think it's anywhere near that, but that number based on the past year and a lot of it is due to all the, the, the racial and primarily the race issue, uh, and gender, uh, And the other big issue that, you know, how are colleges preparing people for the new way that we're going to live? You know, how are we going to work? How does, you know, I mean, I think to me, those are some of the greater, I mean, some of the academics they're not used to the world of work that you and I are used to. And I think that's probably a bigger
0: challenge. (laughs) Well, that's a, that would be a good way to kind of dial this up is that because you are both an educator and a CEO of a company, you, you hire a lot of these kids historically, right? I've, you take I've,
1: some of these. I've hired in my career and have had helped them get jobs in the business. I have found out through USF a little bit over 2000 students through the years.
0: Yes. So that's a great. So do you see this new wave of young men and women coming into your class and, or and actually, no, do you see them coming into the business world being more fragile? then 10 years ago was
1: well, really interesting in anticipation of this you know we have a daily huddle and i was telling everybody that i'm doing a podcast with you and i read the title of the book and i have two interns and they were like well you never coddled us you challenged us you know we knew how you felt about certain issues we knew that you thought all burger king ads suck <laughs> we they were affected it didn't yeah. stop you from going to burger king but you definitely had opinions. And I said, well, does that make me good or bad? No, but you taught us facts and you separated right. fact from, and, 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 and one person, we shall go namely says you separated facts from fiction. And I said, did y'all know my politics? And one person said, well, we assume because you live in San Francisco that you're relatively liberal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good assumption. That's a pretty safe <laughs> assumption. Okay, it is. Yeah. I mean, even the conservatives that you and I know in the city, they're pretty much socially liberal. They're fiscally, yes. they're Correct. conservative primarily to protect their money. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's you know I'm from the south, and trust me, I've seen I can redefine conservative <laughs> nut jobs, uh, and there's liberal nut jobs too. But they were saying, I said, do you feel coddled and all of you go to USF? Do you feel that, you know, that most professors there? And they said, absolutely, because USF is committed that every student like Mormons have to have, you know, a project in social justice. Mm -hmm. That they have to take this class. It's basically nothing more than you have to do something to give back. Like the Mormons do the mission, which I think is very admirable. Yeah. Uh, USF believes that you have a responsibility as a citizen. Well, I say you, you know, like I'm talking about. You know, and I was working on my syllabus last night for the fall. Is that we're going to do one session in consumer behavior? What's the new way to work? You and I know people aren't buying in stores, but they're buying more than ever. So, what is behavior? How do we think about behaviors? So, I'm going to have to give opinions, and I know one of the questions. Well. Does that apply to you? How do you buy? How do you do? I think, you know, I don't, I don't live in a, you know, we're not in a controversial field as much as some uh, some departments. The professor of mine, friend of mine at USF, is a professor of history, says it's, you know, he goes, I really have to make sure I separate fact from my thought. He says, I have exactly. an obligation to myself first. Yep as a historian. To well, let me ask
0: you this more pointed question then. Do you think there's, there are discussions around safe space at work?
1: And oh I haven't God, seen I mean, this. Zoe, how many every day there between the British and the American, you know, our, our trade rags, there is, you know, some argument about how are we doing in hiring diversity? How are we doing? Yes. You know, uh, there's a big, now the big debate is, some people are pissed off that two white guys in London, executive creative directors, sued for sexual discrimination. And several women are all upset that they won a lawsuit. You know, I'm like... The men won the lawsuit? The men won. That it was not... They were not... They they did not discriminate. Okay. And this is like, you know, this is not good. I'm like, well, they won a lawsuit. I, you know, somebody determined... I'm reading the story and I'm like, wow, we can't even accept judgments. You know, that's automatically, you know, it's automatically sexist that it's like, you know, that it favored these two white guys. Well, historically, you know, our business, I mean, the man in the gray flannel suit was about a white man in a gray flannel suit. You watch Mad Men and you think everybody, all white men drank cocktails at lunch and all secretaries sat at desk and typed and mixed cocktails. Well, we know that was not the case. Was it sexist? Was it racist? Was it homophobic? Yes. Is our world today <laughs> yes, racist, exactly. sexist, and homophobic? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, but, the, so that's the never academic's been responsibility. We can't change all of that. Society no. has to take responsibility.
0: Well, and that's, that's a big piece too, because if you look at the diverse, like I'm coaching clients now, executives about this, and I have very limited data, but I have talked to a couple C-suite people that I'm coaching that are dealing with the younger class. They have much more involvement with HR now. Yes, There's real discussions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then Correct. how do you define those? Correct. So I actually watched a really cool panel. There's something called Intelligence Squared. I'm sure you've checked it out, but it's a British platform of debate so they oh, have, have it for
1: real.
0: it's super cool and they'll have a topic and in this case they had a safe space topic and they talked about they had two people for it two people against it wonderful arguments polite debate helped me a lot and it really we understand like oh okay what does this mean and one of the guys was a georgetown law professor who said, I don't really go into the DEI discussions because I'm a law professor and I teach ethics. <laughs> and he said, So the idea behind it is that it's if equity itself is a huge discussion. And he said, Is there is there such a thing as there's equal opportunity, which he said, nobody questions. That's just something that has to happen in every aspect of our life. Yes. That that's the, the big debate that's going on inside companies is opportunity of outcome. How do you measure that? That's the question when you look at a company like Google, as an example. If you say we have to have equity on outcomes specific to hiring practices, specific to diversity and inclusion, that means if you have a thousand developers, 500 of those should effectively be female. 52% should be female. There you go. Because that's 52% of the How do you do that? That's a huge question that I don't have an answer for yet, and I have never seen anyone come up with an answer for it.
1: There's not an answer. There's possible. You're right.
0: Yeah, and so that's where there has to be discussion within each organization has to handle it differently. And what what I have seen, and again anecdotally, is that there are more, and this is a good thing too, right? There has to be, and inclusion and equity, but. The amount of lawsuits, the amount of HR complaints, the amount of... And that's another question too. What And you know my brother Paul is very liberal. He's a law professor. And when I ask a lot of the same questions, he, he, well, microaggression isn't really micro. A micro, He goes, give me an example. And I said, well, in the book, they use grabbing your purse. So if you're a white person walking down the street and there's three young walking down the street towards you, do you grab your purse? And if you do, that's a microaggression. My brother's like, no, it's not a microaggression. It's clear, it's clear. that you're a racist, <laughs> right? And he said, if someone comes up to you and says, where are you from? And you say, well, I'm from San Francisco. Oh, I thought you're from Nigeria. Well, that's not a microaggression either. So then this also gets into the HR side of the world, which is really confusing now, because what is really a microaggression? If you are asking questions like that or grabbing your purse or walking across the street because you're scared of the black kids in front of you is that micro and and that's another question is like where do you draw that line
1: and and the, and the third corollary question to that which is you you have to understand we all have certain biases we all have certain prejudices but we hope our intelligence and our intellect will minimize that you know i heard a uh uh, a relatively controversial professor at Georgetown talked about: "There's a reason why stereotypes exist. Exactly because there are stereotypes, yeah. And that people, fortunate or unfortunate, make decisions based on stereotypes. It is the responsibility of the individual that he or she has to be above that. Doesn't have to endorse it. Doesn't, but understand that historically, we all have a certain amount." of of bias, like, and you just want to downplay it. A lot of people don't, they think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm liberal, therefore I'm right. Well, no, you're not. I, I'm conservative. Therefore I'm, I'm wrong. Uh, well, you know who helped me with this? Our friend Donovan. So yes.
0: we were in New York together and we were, it was a conference somewhere and I can't remember what hotel, but we were hanging out of the lobby and this really good looking tall black man got out of a Range Rover. He goes, is that guy a tech CEO or a baller, Joey?
1: Wow. It's a great question. How'd you answer it? I said, Oh fuck dude.
0: I would have thought it was a baller. And he goes, of course, thank you for being honest. And I was like, yeah, dude, I just... He goes, because a tall black man can't get out of the car and, and everyone thinks he's the CEO, right? That's just not how you're trained. And he goes, I might rip it on you, but it's just thank you for being honest. I was like, yeah, dude, sorry. So that was an example for me that I I carry these bias. I didn't I didn't think he was a tech CEO,
1: right? I just didn't. You know, there's a... You know, and, you talk to a social psychologist who really... there's There's some really great literature that's written out about little questions like that. You see these two things, how do you react? To be yeah. able to help you identify, you know, uh, latent prejudices that you probably don't think about. I am from the South. I hear certain words that people know, and I, I make bad assumptions about them because there are dog whistle words in the South that you use to codify, you know, white privilege, entitlement. Um, and, you know, the, you know, what we haven't used in this conversation is entitlement in a classroom. Some people feel like, Hey, I've paid all that, you know, I've paid all this money to be in grad school. I'm here to get a job. They're more pissed off if the school doesn't help them get a job than they are about diversity of thought, you know? And again, you hit upon, I think is those outcomes, you know, that. Yeah. How do you measure that? How do you measure outcomes of success? How do you measure what are those outcomes? Academics are now having to look at or think about ROI, return on, you know, how much influence do I help you make, get you to think and to be better and foster your career? Um, and, you know, I see it a lot in our, in our business because, you know, I'll, I had during one of the sessions during the pandemic, which I thought was great because you could bring in speakers from all over the country. And I brought a friend of mine in who teaches at the University of Georgia, who I don't really, who I think is one of the smartest people I've ever met in business. But, you know, we disagree on almost on sports and life and, you know, every imaginable political, social, but I respect him. And, you know, and we respect what we, what we both know. And I just said, and he goes, Oh, I love that. He goes, I can't wait to talk to 40 of your liberal students laughing. And he goes, I bet 20 of them are real Americans. So we had this dialogue and it was over, you know, they asked him really good questions and it never once would any of them suspect that he is, you know, he's, he's very Christian, very, you know, very. But in the classroom, he's a centrist. It's not his job to espouse his personal views. It's his job cool. to talk about he's very ethical. In fact, he goes yeah, out of his way to encourage diversity of thinking. Uh, and, I, and, you know, many of our mutual friends say that I'm a, sometimes I'm a wild-eyed optimist. I believe in their iner- inherent nature that good is good. And that if you're a good person and that you understand good, you're going to be tolerant. And if you're not tolerant of other people, doesn't mean you have to accept them. It's going to be very tough. Our business has a lot of you know screwy people that I wouldn't necessarily socialize with or want to have a glass of wine with. But damn, I respect their business acumen. I respect how they think.
0: I agree with you there. And so let's yeah. wrap up with this. Okay. So the one thing that for me... Part of the teaching on DEI is something they call intersectionality, right? Yes. And so they have a chart which they teach. And at the top of the chart is privilege on one axis. And it's described as the following white, male, upper class, fertile, hetero, cisgender, able bodied. That's privilege class. This isn't DEI training. <laughs> this is what they, this is coming from the book. And the oppressive, the oppressed are infertile, poor, female, non white, gay, lesbian, trans, and disabled. And part of what the book offers up is that if we are taught this as incoming freshmen in our first week of university, we start to look across the campus and see differences immediately. Yes. So you and I, as an example, Fit the criteria of privilege in every aspect of the intersectionality that they offered up. You and I are white, male, fertile, wealthy, hetero, able bodied, (laughs) and I don't fit hardly any of the oppressed. So I have, I'm not poor, I'm not infertile, I'm not female, I'm non white, I'm not gay, I'm not trans, I'm not disabled. So from that vantage point, and this is also part of the shout down culture. Of a lot of these universities is that I, based on this descriptor, do not have a voice, right? Because I'm part of the problem, which in this case, and they talk about this at length in the book, is the white male dominated patriarchy of universities and the world of business. That's a whole different subject, but the idea is that you, if you're being involved in the same kind of matters that were described in this book, Brett Weinstein and a bunch of other professors that were shouted out and shouted down and not allowed to talk because of them being white. A lot of that supposedly, based on their thesis, they being Greg and Jonathan, is that this teaching is actually harming the next generation and it's setting them up for failure. Because when you look at the world through this intersectionality lens, all you're doing is teaching them
1: uh division. Well, when this book was written, there was probably some true to that. Not so sure I hundred percent agree. I think March 15, 2020, we all this world got level set. I agree. Every aspect of life. We're almost back at square ground zero or something. And everything is being reinvented, which is why you're seeing almost everything being questioned. Because it's being questioned doesn't mean there's something inherently wrong. Good point. There's a quiet thing going on on college campuses right now that no one wants to talk about. And that is a lot of students are questioning the value of education. (laughs) Yeah, that's true too. And they're like, you know what? Since I've moved to Montana, I mean, like this fall, I have... In two classes, 88 students. I mean, it's amazing. I'm not supposed to have more than 30. But this school says, What do you do to promote? I said, I do nothing to promote, because I'm an adjunct. So and every and I refuse, you know, I, I don't I don't have a PhD and have no desire to get one. So I don't promote. And he goes, Well, every year your classes exceed because people talk. And they yeah. you know. and what we did in the spring, so that 88. 29 are going to be in the rest of the country and the rest are going to be in the classroom. Well, I do well in the classroom. I've got to go to training about this new hybrid flex system, Mm -hmm. which most colleges are going to because they can't afford another year of being all virtual. Parents don't want it. Kids want to get value. Even though I don't think anybody lost value at some point, zoom does wear you out. Because you yeah. just can't have that engagement that you can can in a classroom. Um, but the quiet revolution happening is some people are questioning the value of of an education and they're saying, wait a minute, let me look at a different school. They're not looking at a different school because they wanna, you know, that they're being denied expressions of thought. The world, the world in which we live in, they're looking at everything. Yeah. They're looking at Every part of their life, do I need to live in San Francisco? But since I'm living now in North Dakota, are there schools in North Dakota around? They're uh, much cheaper. (laughs) They're absolutely much cheaper. So we're examining everything. doesn't mean that we're questioning freedom of expression. In some instances, it does. I think in the next year or so, this this may change, but we're in this interesting window. It's very quietly. I mean, USF, Stanford, Cal, San Jose State, San Francisco State, they all lost, they don't, nobody's talking about it. I mean, you know, think about all the West Coast schools who have lost all the Asian students. I mean, USF had 15% Asians that money's gone. Those students are gone. They're not coming back. They're not, you know, if you're an international student right now, you can't get back into the U.S. And I think one of the flourishing things about education is the fact that you do meet many cultures. So, you know, that's something nobody talks about. That wouldn't have been a situation three years ago. Well, now it is. That does factor into this oppressed. Because what you also have in that, quote, oppressed list is international. You know, you have. I mean, look at the rise of Asian culture in our city, the Asian crime in our city, you know, and the stereotypes that Asian, Japanese, Chinese, everyone face. Yeah. And and. So I think I think that that's that's an interesting social issue that schools are grappling with, but it doesn't change the responsibility of the teacher in the classroom. He or she's having to look at a new way of teaching. But that new way of teaching is point. more about space than it is about it's not about ideas at all.
0: It's a good point. Well, you know, this is good for me because it, it I feel better <laughs> talking to you about this. And I know you did some homework on this with your colleagues across the country, so thank you. I I thought that their book was a little bit hyperbolic in the sense of the dooming and the
1: failures of, well, I mean, of the the parents. Situation they brought up are classic examples. I mean, you know, I was, yes, I have, you know, I, I, I classify myself as a liberal. I don't classify myself as a leftist, but those people in Berkeley who created violence should have been in jail. Agreed. If that would have been me, I would have been in jail. Yep. You know, because to me, that is as bad as robbery. They, they committed a violent act.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, like, they did. They actually committed full-on battery yes. to people and then vandalism and all those people. And none of those kids, and they know, they know who they are because they're on camera. They were never prosecuted.
1: And, you know, and, if we're going to hold people in on the right responsible for... The yeah. Justice, <laughs> no. You got to hold these people on the left same. And, yes. And while I probably wouldn't have gone to hear him because I knew news would have covered him. He does have a right to say what he thinks. Exactly. He doesn't have a right to encourage violence. You know, what was it? Yep. What was the justice Oliver Wendell Holmes? You don't have the right to scream fire in a theater, yep. but I will protect your right to free speech. That's it. And we have to remember that.
0: We do. Well, thank you, Professor. As always it's my pleasure to speak with you. And let me shut off the camera here but it's uh it's been awesome
1: as Dang, always. I've enjoyed. Listen, this is I mean y'all are a perfect parents. You're going to be good for your kids. You're involved. Are you going to coddle to a degree but you also have <laughs> yeah, but you also yeah. teach them respect and how to make decisions. Yeah. And you're going to have time to you know for them to develop. I mean, you don't strike me as here go grab your phone, go sit on the games. You know, parents have yeah. to take responsibility. I mean, you know, this is a world now more than ever. Conversation and dialogue is is real, real important. Uh, that's a I couldn't agree more,
0: and that's exactly why I started this podcast because I think a lot of these subjects need polite, reality based discussions, and I and think that's not talk, black and white. Not yeah. no, none of it is. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.